This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Leslie Van Houten had always been a good girl. As she stood in her father's home, the home where she grew up, she remembered the girl who used to sing in church choir— the charming young lady who was elected homecoming queen. The house was dark. She watched her friends move from room to room, collecting valuables. She watched them rob her family blind. Then she hurried to help. She felt a tinge of remorse as she looted heirlooms she one day might have inherited, but she tamped those feelings down. This was for the greater good. Charlie had been sending them on these nightly missions for the better part of the summer of 1969. They needed all the money and valuables they could get. Something was coming, he said. Something big. A race war. And when Helter Skelter hit, she would be at the center of it, ready to lead the new world order. These petty thefts didn't matter. After Helter Skelter, the house she had grown up in would be reduced to rubble. Her parents would never make it out alive. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. This week, we're commemorating the 50-year anniversary of the infamous Manson family murders on August 8th and 9th, 1969. 
and covering the women Manson manipulated to carry out these gruesome crimes. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point, with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. On August 8th and 9th, 1969, followers of cult leader Charles Manson drove into Los Angeles and murdered seven people, seemingly at random. Among them was actress Sharon Tate, who was almost nine months pregnant at the time. The Manson family murders are among the most infamous in the American canon and changed the socio-political mindset of the country forever. Manson manipulated and weaponized the counterculture movement and captivated the American public with chilling sentiments like, quote, I am only what you made me. I am only a reflection of you. But less well-known are the followers who committed these acts. 21-year-old Susan Atkins, 19-year-old Leslie Van Houten, 21-year-old Patricia Krenwinkel, 20-year-old Linda Kasabian, 26-year-old Catherine Scher, and 20-year-old Lynette Squeaky Fromey. This week, we'll delve into the lives of these women— and find out how they came to live with the Manson family on the Spawn Ranch just outside Los Angeles. Next week, we'll cover the two-night murder spree that left seven dead and killed the counterculture movement. Charles Manson was born to 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox on November 12, 1934. He entered the world an unwanted child. His mother cared so little for him that she didn't even bother naming him on his hospital records. To this day, his birth certificate reads, No Name Maddox. If one needed further proof of her indifference, Kathleen once took Manson to a bar when he was still a toddler. A woman sitting a few stools down commented on how cute he was, to which Kathleen replied, Buy me a pitcher of beer and he's yours. The woman laughed and bought her the beer, assuming Kathleen was joking. But an hour later, Kathleen got up and walked out, her two-year-old son still sitting on the bar next to an empty pitcher. Manson was later returned to his mother, who was less than thrilled that the police had been able to track her down. It might seem unlikely that nobody called Child Protective Services, but in 1936, The U.S. was still recovering from the Great Depression, and nobody had the resources to feed extra mouths. Children were no better off as wards of the state than with neglectful parents. 
So back to Kathleen he went. Over the next 30 years, Manson's life would get no easier. He would be in and out of jail constantly for sex trafficking, forgery, and theft. In 1960, he was arrested for pimping and spent the next seven years in McNeil Island Prison. By the time he was paroled in San Francisco in March 1967, the 32-year-old vagabond was broke, a hardened criminal, and nothing short of psychopathic. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. Just a reminder, she is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. In an article for Medical Daily, journalist Ilana Glowatz reported that Manson showed signs of antisocial personality disorder throughout his life. According to the DSM-5, people with APD show disregard for the feelings of others and lack a sense of moral responsibility. The Mayo Clinic adds, people with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, or treat others harshly or with callous indifference. They show no guilt or remorse for their behavior. Psychopathy is an extreme form of APD, hallmarked by manipulation, impulsive and often aggressive behavior, and a lack of regard for rules. Many psychopaths, Manson included, learn to mimic socially appropriate behavior to get what they want from people. Incapable of reform, prison only exposed him to people who taught him how to improve his manipulation tactics. He learned how to target vulnerable women from pimps he met at McNeil Island Prison. Soon, 32-year-old Charles Manson was nothing short of a snake charmer. When he was paroled in 1967, he moved to San Francisco, the place for the counterculture movement. Hippies swarmed the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, seeking love, acceptance, and any drug available. Manson arrived at Haight-Ashbury to discover throngs of men and women in their late teens and early 20s, largely disillusioned by the Vietnam War and the materialism and traditional religious values of their parents' generation. The counterculture movement had turned away from established religious institutions and began looking for more spirituality-based guidance. Many young people began following gurus who seemed to have tapped some kind of nirvana or higher calling. Without realizing it, many of these free-spirited hippies broke away from one established religion only to fall into smaller, more radical religious groups. With Charles Manson's magnetism and knack for public speaking, he styled himself as one of these gurus and soon garnered himself a small following. He traveled up and down the coast, making contact with women around Southern California, drawing them into his fold. One of his earliest followers was a young, mousy redhead named Lynette Fromey. Lynette has had many claims to fame over the years, including her attempted assassination of President Gerald Ford in 1975. But before she was a failed assassin, she was Charles Manson's right-hand woman. The oldest of three children, Lynette was born on October 22, 1948 in Santa Monica, California. Her mother, Helen, was a homemaker, and her father, William, was an aeronautical engineer. From a young age, Lynette proved that she was destined for notoriety. As a kid, she was a star performer in a dance troupe called the Westchester Lariats. The troupe was so good that they were invited to tour all over the country, 
even performing at the White House when Lynette was about 10. Lynette was a fairly good student, usually getting A's and B's, and had an interest in theater. In fact, it was through her junior high's theater department that she met the first man she would ever fall in love with, a young Phil Hartman, who would later gain fame as a comedian on Saturday Night Live. For the record, it doesn't seem like Lynette and Hartman ever dated. She was enamored with him and always seemed to be tagging along behind him. He didn't mind the attention, but the affection was clearly one-sided. Lynette shared a quality similar to many of her future Manson family sisters, a near-constant need for validation, specifically from men. According to author and researcher Bruce Bryans, these behaviors are often learned in childhood. Both men and women are trained from a young age to seek male attention, especially in a cisgendered patriarchal society like the 1950s United States. In most family units at the time, the father's attention was more scarce, making it a hot commodity. Lynette herself has confirmed that her father was often wrapped up in his own work and studies, passionate about his job, but emotionally unavailable to his children. According to Bryans, women with emotionally unavailable fathers often go looking for attention from their male peers. But if they don't find the attention in romantic partners, some of these women, Lynette included, can become addicted to chasing approval from emotionally unavailable men. This kind of attention is usually lackluster at best, but to Lynette, it was better than no attention at all. She didn't mind having to work hard for divided attention, a quality that would serve her well in the years to come. Lynette graduated high school in 1966, after which her story gets a little murky. By age 18, she was homeless, living on the streets near Venice Beach, California. Little is known about what drove such a wedge between her and her family that she ended up homeless, just a few miles from where she grew up. Biographer Jess Braven has suggested that Lynette was sexually abused by her father, which could have been why she felt unsafe living in his home. But Lynette has denied these accusations. Whatever the reason, by the time she met Charles Manson in 1967, 19-year-old Lynette had hit rock bottom. She recalled sitting on a park bench by the beach when a shaggy-haired man approached her and said, Name's Charlie. The connection was instantaneous. Lynette and Charlie talked about all sorts of things. Her past, her feelings of abandonment, about feeling trapped by her homelessness and poverty. Charlie listened and was empathetic. He said he understood Lynette. He had just spent nearly eight years trapped in prison. For most young women, this would have been a red flag. But no man had ever given Lynette this much undivided attention. Even her boyfriend had a way of making her feel misunderstood and lonely within their relationship. Then Charles Manson stood up and told Lynette he was on his way north to visit his mother. He pointed to a small gaggle of people nearby and said that they were coming with him. If she liked, Lynette could come too. With that, Charlie and the group began to walk away. Lynette was already tethered to him. As he started to disappear down the block, she could feel something tugging at her, urging her to go after him. Without thinking, she grabbed her bag and took off down the street. That balmy day in 1967, and every day since, Lynette Fromey did the thing she did best, 
follow a man who would never quite let her catch him. Lynette settled into life with Charles Manson quickly. She was only one of several women with whom Charlie was intimate, all of whom seemed vulnerable and directionless. Many of them were drug users or had hit rock bottom. Lynette believed Charlie just wanted to protect them and take care of them, a belief she still holds to this day. Lynette and Charlie soon began a sexual relationship, along with a third member of their little group, 24-year-old Mary Brunner. At first, Charlie's polygamy made Lynette uncomfortable, especially as he began sleeping with newer members of the family, some of whom were as young as 13. But sharing Charlie's attention was better than being outside the family. She got over it. In truth, this was just the reaction Charles Manson was counting on. He had a knack for spotting women who would let him push their boundaries, learned from the pimps he met while serving time. Women who felt devalued by other men would confuse his manipulative behavior as love. In fact, former pimp Galen Harper once explained to K5 News Seattle that when grooming a woman for the sex trade, he would seek out a woman with little confidence and work to gain her trust. Then he knew she would be hooked on him for the long term. Tragically, most of Manson's followers were from broken homes. He preyed on women who considered themselves damaged and unwanted. He used sex to fabricate intimacy with these women, knowing they would work to keep his attention. It was these skills that helped Manson lure Patricia Krenwinkel, who he renamed Katie, into the fold. In less than two years, Charles Manson would completely remake Katie into a murderer. In a moment, the Manson family lays down roots and spreads its wings. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Patricia Krenwinkel was born on December 3rd, 1947, near Los Angeles, her story is similar to many of the women who eventually followed Manson. She felt lonely and unwanted and was searching to belong. Patricia was bullied for most of her childhood for being overweight, which made her feel isolated from her peers. At 15, she lost her virginity to a boy she thought had feelings for her, only to never hear from him again. After that, she became addicted to diet pills supplied to her by her older sister, Charlene, who was a heroin addict. But once Patricia lost considerable weight, her peers started bullying her about the excessive dark hair that covered her body. Then, to top it all off, her parents divorced in 1965, when she was 17. By the time she graduated high school in 1966, Patricia's self-worth was in the gutter. She felt ugly and unwanted, so much so that she decided no man would ever love her and turned her focus toward becoming a nun. She briefly enrolled at Spring Hill College in Alabama, 
a Jesuit Catholic school, with the intention of studying catechism, but she dropped out after only one semester and returned home to Los Angeles. She tried teaching catechism briefly, but ultimately abandoned the idea of joining the convent and found a clerical job in L.A. By the time she met Charles Manson in 1967, 19-year-old Patricia felt utterly isolated from her peers and rejected by her family. She once said, quote, I never ever developed a sense of who I was and where I was going and what I wanted to do. I wanted to please. I wanted to feel safe, to feel like someone was going to care for me. I hadn't felt that from anyone else in my life. She would soon meet the person who would easily lull her into a sense of security, however false. One night in September 1967, Patricia came home to find Charlene in the basement with a group of her friends, including a shaggy-haired guitar player named Charlie. Charlie immediately picked up on Patricia's insecurities and pounced. The two slept together that night, and Charlie told her she was beautiful. After 19 years of being teased for her looks, Patricia was so moved by the sentiment that she was brought to tears. Charles Manson made her stand in front of a mirror naked and call herself beautiful, which only further broke down her defenses. She told Charlie that night that she would follow him anywhere and became the third woman in his little traveling caravan. She, Lynette Fromey, and Mary Brunner became the Manson girls. Susan Atkins would soon join their ranks. Susan, a San Gabriel, California native, suffered a similar pattern of neglect. Her father was an alcoholic, and her mother died of cancer in 1963 when Susan was 15. Susan had always had a strained relationship with her father, but without her mother as a buffer, their relationship quickly deteriorated. She moved out and fell in with a bad crowd, eventually doing three months of jail time for armed robbery. When she was released in 1967, 19-year-old Susan moved to San Francisco, where she took up topless dancing and selling drugs to make ends meet. Later that year, she met Charles Manson when he came to visit a commune she was staying in. Soon after their chance encounter, Susan's commune was raided by police, largely because it was more a drug-infested flophouse than a residence, and Susan quickly found herself homeless. Manson invited her to join his group, and he established his own commune in San Francisco. The Manson family was officially born. From its inception, Charles Manson was always about 10 years older than his average follower. He acted like a father figure to them which provided them with a sense of security they had lacked at home. Of course, most upstanding fathers do not initiate sexual relationships with their daughters, but this never seemed to bother the Manson girls, many of whom were well underage. But as their little family grew, aspiring musician Charles Manson realized he would need a bigger place to stay, somewhere he might be able to make it in the business. In 1968, he found such a spot, and he and his little collection of broken souls headed south to the city where stars are born. Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson picked up a few of Charles Manson's family members who were hitchhiking into L.A. 
the hitchhikers introduced Wilson to Charles Manson, and the two men met and became fast friends. Manson was an aspiring musician, and Dennis Wilson liked his energy and the gaggle of women at his every beck and call. The two hit it off so well that Dennis agreed to allow Charlie and his followers to crash at his home for the course of the summer. Not only that, but Dennis confided in Manson that he was growing tired of the Beach Boy sound and preferred the songs Charles composed. He recorded a few of Manson's tracks and even introduced Charles to a record producer named Terry Melcher. Melcher was one of the biggest producers of his day. He's largely credited with shaping the California rock sound that has become so indicative of 1960s counterculture. And when Charles Manson and Dennis Wilson visited him at his home on Cielo Drive, Melcher seemed genuinely interested in Charlie's music. He even tossed around the idea of making a movie about Manson's commune. Manson left, never having felt so high. Finally, he was breaking into the music business and proving himself to be the rock god he always knew he would be. He had everything, an impending record deal, a gaggle of devoted followers, and a swanky Hollywood home where the party never stopped. But the endless lifestyle of sex, drugs, and more drugs soon wore on Wilson, who estimated that between food, medical costs, drugs, noise complaints, and property damage, the ever-growing Manson family was costing him around $100,000 within just a few months. The Manson family was never a particularly large cult. At its height, it only had about 30 members, but they took over every nook and cranny of Wilson's home until he finally had to kick them out at the end of the summer. In 1968, the budding Manson family settled into Spawn Ranch, an abandoned movie set owned by George Spawn. He agreed to allow the family to live on his ranch in exchange for upkeep of the property and his pick of the Manson girls. Spawn is also credited with giving 20-year-old Lynette Fromey the nickname Squeaky after the noises she made when he grabbed her. Manson loved the nickname, and from that moment on, the moniker stuck. It's widely insinuated that Squeaky paid the family's rent by having sex with Spawn on at least a few occasions, but Squeaky has neither outright confirmed nor denied this. It seemed as though the Manson family was back on the up and up. Even more thrilling, Dennis Wilson called to say that he was bringing Terry Melcher up to the ranch to hear a few more of Manson's songs. Charlie was thrilled. And by all accounts, Melcher did like his sound, but he still had reservations about working with Charles Manson. Melcher, it seemed, was a much better judge of character than Dennis Wilson. Melcher left the ranch, falsely promising to call Charlie soon. When the call failed to come, Manson spiraled into a rage. He went looking for Dennis Wilson, only to discover that Wilson wasn't home. Fuming, he drove to the home on Cielo Drive where he had first met Melcher. But unbeknownst to Charlie, Melcher and his girlfriend had vacated the house months before. It was now being rented to director Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate. Manson and Polanski seemingly had some kind of altercation at the home, mostly because Manson refused to believe that Melcher no longer lived there. 
he left more venomous than ever and went back to Spawn Ranch to lick his wounds. Following a series of outbursts and threats, Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher severed ties with Manson completely, leaving his dreams of music stardom dashed. But Charles Manson was always one to hold a grudge. He projected all of the hate and neglect that he had been carrying with him for years onto the industry that had most recently rejected him. And for the first time, everything he hated had a physical address. 10050 Cielo Drive. He committed it to memory. And promised to be back. Throughout the rest of 1968 and into 1969, Charles Manson put all his energy into gathering new followers and bringing them to live on Spawn Ranch. The first of these was Catherine Scher, a French-American woman born in Paris on December 10, 1942. Her parents were members of the French underground during World War II and died of suicide to prevent themselves from being taken by Nazis. A newly orphaned Catherine was sent to a French orphanage, where she lived until 1950 when she was eight years old. At this point, she was adopted by a French woman and her American psychologist husband. Shortly afterwards, the family of three relocated to Los Angeles, California. But her new set of parents would later abandon her in much the same way as her birth parents. In 1958, when Catherine was 16, her mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer and decided to end things on her own terms. She, too, died of suicide. Her adoptive father was overwhelmed with grief and by that point had gone completely blind. Given everything, he needed a caretaker, and Catherine quickly filled that role. But their relationship was never the same. After the death of Catherine's adoptive mother, her adoptive father grew distant and cold. She felt rejected by him, especially after he remarried, leaving teenage Catherine without much purpose or direction in life. She graduated from Hollywood High School in 1960, feeling more isolated than ever. As her peers began to enjoy the free love movement that defined the decade, she searched for a way to fill a void in her life. She wanted to feel loved. Feeling anxious and alone, she enrolled in college and spent the next three years trying to find some direction. During that time, she was married and quickly divorced, which only left her feeling more lonely than before the relationship. She indulged in overeating, drugs, and free love in an attempt to compensate. By 1963, 21-year-old Catherine was utterly listless. She embraced her new persona as a flower child and began drifting around Southern California, ever in search of a party. She would often wind up back in L.A., where, for lack of something better to do, she would take roles in soft porn films. One such acting role was in a movie called Ramrodder. On set, Catherine met Bobby Beausoleil, a struggling musician from Santa Barbara, and the two became fast friends. Bobby also introduced Catherine to his wife, Gail. The three hit it off so well that Catherine began living with them. For the first time in years, she felt like she had a small, makeshift family. In other words, for the first time in a long time, she had something to lose, which might have made her far more susceptible to the family friend Bobby soon introduced her to. 
Charlie was the most charming person Catherine had ever met. His shaggy brown hair and wide smile were captivating. She fell for him in an instant. Catherine knew little about Charlie, other than the fact that he rented a huge ranch 25 miles north of Los Angeles. As the two grew closer, Catherine also learned that Charlie lived with a group of free love hippies all around her age. They called themselves the Manson family, and Charlie was their leader. The word family grabbed her. She knew she wanted to be a part of it. Eight months after moving in with Bobby and Gail, all three of them moved to Spawn Ranch and began living in the commune with Manson. By the time they moved onto the ranch, Catherine had fallen in love with Charlie, who seemingly reciprocated her feelings. Not that he was interested in monogamy, of course. When it came to sex, Charlie Manson lived by a strict, the more the merrier philosophy. Charlie soon gave Catherine the nickname Gypsy, a moniker that would follow her the rest of her life. Gypsy was 26, the oldest woman living on the ranch, and quickly became the family's mother. She also became Manson's recruiter-in-chief, seeking out vulnerable, listless women who might like to help expand the family. Two of these women, Leslie Van Houten and Linda Kasabian, would live on the ranch for less than a year before participating in one of the most infamous murders in American history. In a moment, the Manson family gets its first taste of blood. Now, back to the story. Leslie Van Houten was born on August 23, 1949, in Altadena, California. She was born into an upper-middle-class family and given every advantage in the world. She was enrolled in sports as a kid and even elected homecoming queen in high school. But despite her well-to-do upbringing, Leslie never felt emotionally supported by her parents. She felt trapped by their expectations of marrying an equally well-brought-up man and becoming a housewife. As a teenager, Leslie experimented with drugs like LSD, hashish, and marijuana. But shortly after dabbling in drugs, she began abusing them. By the summer of 1968, 19-year-old Leslie was a full-blown drug addict and social rebel who had fallen out of her parents' graces. That summer, Leslie met Gypsy, who told her about a man named Charles Manson and the family they were building at Spawn Ranch. Much like Gypsy, Leslie was attracted to the notion of family and decided to stay on the ranch with her new friends, quickly becoming one of Charles Manson's favorite girls. Leslie has since described her experience on the ranch as surreal. The group would have orgies and take LSD together. And it was during these trips that Charles Manson sermonized about being the son of God. He drew parallels between his last name, Manson, and being the son of man. He would also make his followers help him recreate the crucifixion of Jesus with himself in the starring role. While his group was under the influence of drugs, he would explain to them how he, the son of man, had already died for them and asked if they would be willing to die for him in exchange. For followers like Squeaky, this was no problem. In fact, there was seemingly nothing Squeaky wouldn't do for Manson. Because the family didn't have money for food, the girls would drive down into Los Angeles, 
and dumpster dive behind grocery stores for thrown out produce. Squeaky maintains that the food she ate out of those dumpsters was among the freshest she's had in her life. It's been rumored that she, along with a few other girls, were also pressured into sleeping with managers of at least one grocery store in exchange for being allowed to wade through the garbage for food. Women outnumbered men on the ranch five to one, a ratio that Manson rather liked. He would occasionally recruit men to the ranch by offering them one of his front girls, the nickname he gave to his most attractive set of followers. It was pimping, although Charlie would paint it as family teamwork. They slept with men in exchange for drugs, food, or anything else Charlie had his heart set on. Manson also started forcing his followers to participate in weird trust exercises. On one occasion, he made followers stand in front of a tree while he threw hatchets just above their heads. If they flinched, it meant they didn't trust him. Leslie recalled how Charles used to walk around the ranch and stop people at random to participate in weird exercises, like mirroring his movements exactly, so they were moving their hands and bodies in unison. In hindsight, she realized, it was all part of a brainwashing process to train his budding cult to follow him in all things. They were only allowed to listen to Charles' music on the ranch, or the Beatles, since he was particularly obsessed with the White Album. 1969 continued on like this, with nightly parties and daily sermons, all stranger than fiction. By the time Gypsy brought Linda Kasabian to the ranch, the Manson cult was fully formed. In July 1969, 20-year-old Linda was living in Topanga, California with her husband and infant daughter. At that point, her marriage had fallen apart completely, and Linda was looking for a way out. She found one through Gypsy, who invited Linda to come live on Spawn Ranch with a group of people who would love and take care of each other. Linda didn't need much coaxing. When she arrived at the ranch, she was surprised at how welcoming the other women were. She was glad to find that there were other children on the ranch for her daughter to play with. Everyone greeted her with hugs, like she was one of them already. In hindsight, they were all completely drugged out. But at the time, it felt so warm that she didn't notice. Considering the loveless marriage she was leaving, it felt like a breath of fresh air. She didn't meet Charles Manson at first, but the more she heard about him, the more the anticipation built. The first night on the ranch, she met Tex Watson, one of Manson's few male followers. The two hit it off right away. Linda was attracted to him, and in later interviews said, he made me feel like I had never felt before. Within the first few days of meeting, Linda confided in texts that her husband and his friend kept little stores of money in their trailer, totaling about $5,000. The money was meant for Linda and her husband to start a new life together, maybe take an exotic trip. But no plan she made with her husband ever seemed to materialize. That's when Tex gave her a proposition. She should steal the money. He reasoned it didn't belong to her husband any more than it belonged to her. Even at the time, Linda knew that was untrue, but she wanted acceptance into the family and felt that stealing the money might be the best way to get it. She was right. 
After raiding her old trailer for the cash, she was finally taken to meet Charlie. Linda remembered feeling a magnetic pull from the moment she met him. It was utterly thrilling. Not long after, Linda's husband and his friend came to the ranch to demand their money back. Charlie stuck up for Linda immediately. It's unclear what exactly happened, but a few moments in private with the two men sent them packing, never to bother Linda again. She had never felt so cared for. From that moment onwards, she became one of the 32 adults in Manson's cult. Of course, this isn't surprising. Whether Linda recognized it or not, she had just undergone an initiation ceremony. A 1965 study conducted at Stanford University showed that high-risk or unpleasant initiations make the group more attractive to the new member. Initiations are almost required for cults so that new members won't leave once the going gets rough. And Linda's enthusiasm shows. After all, she had been willing to steal for this man before ever meeting him. Now, She'd do just about anything to see Charlie smile. Linda started participating in the cult's now famous LSD parties that would turn into orgies. Manson would stay fairly sober during these to better control his followers. He would tell them who to sleep with and control their every move. And around this time, his rhetoric grew noticeably darker, leaving the realm of free love. He began to convince his followers that he was the second coming of Christ and the devil, all in the same person. He began pushing his followers to commit strange, petty crimes for him. He called these missions creepy crawlies. They would drive into Los Angeles and sneak into people's homes then rearrange all the furniture in the house while the homeowners were sleeping. It was unnerving. People would wake up to find all the furniture in their home rearranged with almost nothing stolen. During that time, Manson convinced Leslie Van Houten to rob her father's house. She did so without a second thought. Charles had always had irresistible charisma, but now his followers were beginning to see him as something more. He was godlike to them. He began giving sermons to his followers, wherein he would talk about the looming apocalypse that would destroy all but the chosen few. He became obsessed with the Beatles' song Helter Skelter, which he believed was written as a direct message to him. He said the song was heralding the end times, when a great race war would lay society to ruin. In his estimation, the race war would lead to the toppling of white supremacy, and the black community would rise to power as the new world leaders. Manson and his friends would stay out of the war completely. They would hide out in the desert, which would become a land of milk and honey, as described in the Book of Revelation in the Bible. He explained, black Americans deserved the right to rise to power. They had been trampled on for centuries, so it was only good karma that they get their chance to rule. But Manson was racist. He also believed that the black community was unequipped to rule and would eventually need white men to show them how to lead. With no other white men left, Manson and his family would come back from the desert to take the reins of power from the overwhelmed black leaders. It was ridiculous, racist hogwash, but his LSD-addled followers believed it wholeheartedly. 
After all, the 1960s were a time of extreme racial tension in the United States. The rise of the Black Panthers caused overinflated panic among many white communities. To many, a race war wasn't a far leap from the race riots they were seeing around the country. Manson began speaking of helter-skelter on a daily basis. Linda Kasabian recalled an excitement building around it. Then, in late July 1969, something happened that would put helter-skelter on the fast track. Manson family member Bobby Beausoleil went up to a friend's house, accompanied by 26-year-old Mary Brunner and 21-year-old Susan Atkins. The home was rented by a friend named Gary Henman, a brilliant musician who had once played Carnegie Hall. He also supplied Bobby with drugs from time to time, which Bobby would then sell. But the most recent batch of mescaline Gary sold Bobby was bad, and his buyers wanted their money back, which meant that Bobby, in turn, wanted a refund. Bobby, Susan, and Mary overpowered Gary and tied him to a chair. They demanded their money back, but Gary told them he didn't have the cash. Eventually, Manson showed up at the cabin with a samurai sword and tried to intimidate Gary. But Gary wasn't scared of Manson and refused to pay. By this point, Charles Manson had been living as a deified cult leader for nearly two years. He didn't take kindly to being rebuked. He used the sword to slice part of Gary's ear off, sending Gary reeling in pain. Bobby tried to patch Gary's ear up, but Gary insisted on seeking medical attention. Gary didn't know it, but he had just signed his own death warrant. Bobby would later say that Gary didn't deserve one bit of what happened next, but he felt like he had no choice. He knew that the second they brought him to the hospital, Gary would narc. Bobby killed Gary Henman. He tortured his friend for three days before finally stabbing him twice in the chest. Charles Manson knew exactly how to get away with the murder, too. Using Gary's blood, they made a paw print on the wall of Henman's cabin and wrote, Political Piggies in Blood. Charles hoped that by using these symbols of the Black Panthers, he could pin the murder on them and incite a race riot. But he had learned something else, too that if he wanted, he could push his followers to murder. It was a skill he knew would be mighty useful in the impending war. He returned to Spawn Ranch and told his followers to get ready. A war was coming. Hellfire would be on their doorstep. And when it arrived, all of Los Angeles would burn to the ground. Thanks again for tuning in to our Female Criminals Summer of 69 special. Next week, we finish our deep dive into the Manson family murders, a spree of slayings so horrific, they're largely considered the moment that ended the 60s. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd to August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. 
Be sure to check it out on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Aaron Lan and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye.